What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgerwood, and this is Lit Up. I have been waiting to speak to Max Porter again since 2016, when I was lucky enough to interview him about his breakout, totally bizarre and wacky and beautiful novel, Grief is the Thing with Feathers. That book completely knocked the wind out of me because it was shocking in the way it used language and poetry and then called itself a novel. And that is what Max's work is like. His second novel, Lanny, was similarly just bold and kind of crazy. His third novel, Shy, is the story of a few strange hours in the life of a troubled teenage boy. And it goes back to familiar territory that Max is obsessed with, like childhood and adolescence and how to be a young man and loss and grief and really getting inside the psyche of a young person's mind. Now, all of this might sound heavy, but as you will hear, Max just has a warmth and charisma that really is unmatched. And he can also talk about the lighter things in life, like the pleasures of discovering fragrant shower gels and his new obsession, Japanese socks. I really hope you love this episode because I have waited seven years to talk to him again. Enjoy. I cannot believe Max Porter is back on Lit Up. Max, we spoke so long ago. I think it was 2017. When did Grief is the Thing with Feathers come out? I think it was 2016 that we spoke because it came out in 2015. Well, now we're in New York. Yeah, pre Brexit. Um, I was lucky enough, I was walking to where we're recording this, and it's a bright day. And we're in Soho and I look over to the right and I see Max walking along dressed in black and it just feels something about coming full circle. Mm. Um, I feel like I've grown up so much. I want to know how your life has changed. I want to know how you've grown up. Tell me. Mm. I... Because it's been like a lot's (sighs) happened and it's a long few years in the world or just... Well, I feel... Have, living in America and seeing what happened, like 2016 yeah. too, and the shift and what everyone's gone through. And then personally, I moved home to Australia, trying to make that home again mm. for all really good reasons. Mm. And then was drawn back to New York kind of with a job that felt mm. exciting and like it would be a regret if I didn't come back, um, I'm engaged. Oh, how, how lovely. Congratulations. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I know when we first met, it was your first book. And I think we 
had the conversation before it even came out. So I was so lucky to have you before the yeah. chaos. Yeah, and fresh the, and clueless. And, and the praise and all of those things mm. that your work always feels so primal and like guttural. Mm. And I felt so lucky to speak to you about it before the world put their mm. thoughts mm. onto it. Totally. I look back. So, yeah, how some, are you? Well, I look back at that time with some nostalgic warmth now. You know, I'm, I'm, um, or, or I sort of pack it into the way I think about things now because actually that moment when I was told, you know, that book, they paid me like a thousand pounds for it. And they said it'll sell 600 copies and don't worry about translation rights because that's very unlikely with a book like this. And actually that's how to think about the book. So to think of yourself as a success in any way is so corrupting and so um, it's so corrosive and unhealthy and for, for a million different reasons that actually that freshness of just like, oh, I've written something which to me feels guttural um, and, and alive and has an energy on the page and not think about who the readership for it might be or what I might have to give up my job or anything like that. To be in that sort of dazed moment with the language and with the proposition of it to meet readers and be like, <laughs> You know, does it relate to anything else? All the kind of stuff that comes later, which is sort of algorithmic thinking or marketing materials or promotion activity. Like, I guess I was just before that in a kind of accidental glow of having written something that that was meeting people. And, and yeah, so I, I sort of cherish that moment. I try and re, I try and recreate it every time if I can. But yeah, I'm fine, thanks. <laughs> I've had, um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's been a really, really grotesque time in the UK as it has elsewhere. Um, but my children are well. They've grown into these extraordinarily beautiful, emotionally intelligent, funny, complex people. And, and three boys. Three boys, yeah. And now we have a dog uh, called Happy. And we got him a year and a half ago and he was really hard work for a little while. And now it's just like a source of incredible joy and has taught me a lot. Actually, maybe we'll get onto this because some of it's in shy, but he's taught me a lot about communication and patience and the non-human like i thought i was a good communicator but of course i wasn't i was just nifty with the tricks of language and care and compassion or whatever it is you know bartering emotional bartering with other human beings and actually i'm not good at communicating when you don't when you say language out and i'm not very patient and that's been really amazing for me um so now i'm a dog person not other people's dogs. You know, I want one of those T-shirts that says, "Just because I have a dog doesn't mean I give a shit about your dog." I you know, people exactly just people stop same. and tell you everything about little little Ludo's operation, and I'm like, I don't care. Parents do the same, of course. Anyway, yeah, so I'm good. And then um, I've had a really clarifying few weeks because Shy came out in the UK and um, got at the very beginning a really vicious hatchet job, like someone really attacked me and the work and I, my work has always been divisive some people if you know if, if you hate my work you really hate it but it was such an amazing and productive and generative thing to happen early on because I had to do the the painful thinking and the kind of mindful thinking early on about um you know a don't publish books if you don't like to be criticized that's a madness but also you know what 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 are you what are you feeling what are you deciding to feel in this life and then going out and doing these events that i've been doing and meeting people and collaborating with people and hearing what audiences and readers have to say about shy is the kind of exact opposite from a political and emotional point of someone just writing that they don't like your book in a newspaper it's people taking your book and unpacking it and living with it and having the generosity and patient and time to tell you that and find a language to tell it with you with their bodies and, and, and even to be to, you know for someone to queue up for half an hour to then just rest their hand on my shoulder and say thank you i was a shy is like mind-blowing and humbling and exciting so being on the road with this book i'm finding really exciting and inspiring and i and i feel like i said i, I texted a friend of mine back home this morning just said feeling very grateful very happy to be alive um, and you know I'm a miserable bastard so it's <laughs> an unusual thing for me to say oh um, well that's wonderful so yeah the answer is I'm fine I'm good that's great I mean I'm going to go somewhere dark right away because I heard you on another brilliant podcast talking about how you're obsessed with a death drive and that you have a death drive an interest in in death 
and it's kind of throughout all your work. But then obviously the the other side of that is what you've just said. I'm alive. Mm. And I feel like your characters all have to grapple with that. Do I want to be here? Mm. Some have lost hugely important people in their lives, mm. but it's always a look at do I want to be here? How do I be here mm, in the exactly. world? So the death drive, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm not a Freudian expert, but what I've discovered over the years is that writing, because someone said I was on a long car drive with someone the other day and I was playing them a song that I'd written the lyrics for by Joan Shelley, which if you haven't listened to it, you must, because Joan Shelley is a genius and has the most incredible voice and it's called Bed in the River. And I wrote the lyrics and sent them to Joan and she sent me this song back. And in the, in the song is this lyric about um, holding a dead swan while it dies. And the friend that was driving me was like, why do you kill all these animals? There's so many dead animals in your books. Or not even dead animals, but, you know, brought back to life animals or reanimated animals. And the body of the dead thing is the gift, right, that, that we as living things can learn from. And I just think my books are all sort of concerned with turning the death drive into a, into a, into a life energy, into an into a, into a ecstatic gratitude of some kind, but not, not in a kind of unexamined, it's great, but in, in an examined, it's, it's great. It's very, very difficult, and that's what is great. So like my first book, the proposition was, you know, mourning isn't a two-dimensional feeling of sadness. It is, it is a world to explore and um, find within yourself and keep on examining and turning into everything, like pain, the pain is love. So the fundamental proposition for this book was, what if someone just doesn't get it? What if someone just doesn't buy it and doesn't feel like it's for them and that they're in a cul-de-sac? And I have spoken to and studied um, and known people that have made this decision. And I feel that something has always been very judgmental in the way we talk about them, as if they're rejecting the great gift. And I'm interested in that because I think it is a great gift, and particularly the miracle of consciousness. To be in this bright moment is astonishing, right? But it is also terrible, and it's a prison, and, and an inequality and an injustice, particularly now in the, time, in, the, in, the, in the kind of context of the Anthropocene. What you're saying to people is be grateful to be alive in this terrifying prison of injustice and pain and and and, and the kind of forever war of death of death and exploitation right and so how to reconcile those two things and as adults we find ways and much of that is to do with denial we just forget about it and get on with it and get a mortgage and buy nice stuff and pretend we're going to live forever and the mortality rate still seems to me to be 100 percent, right so so we're all kidding ourselves and teenagers often gifted with as well as depressed people this insight into why that's so painful and why you might not buy it, buy into it. And I felt maybe it's the result of kind of the, the legacy of Christian thinking or religious thinking of all kinds, or maybe it's this kind of cult of longevity or happiness or health or whatever it is. But we tend to patronize or belittle people that have those feelings and tell them that either they'll get better, but if they were to take their own life, they'd be committing the most ungrateful sin. And I just wanted to examine that and try and present someone who feels this way in a non-judgmental way, but also crucially, and that's one of the reasons it's in 1995, is in a non-diagnostic way. Because I think if I just called him manically depressed or, or said he was having panic attacks and needed beta blockers or said he was bipolar and needed medication on a longer term, I would be purporting to have a way of contextualizing for others those feelings and potentially ticking his box uh, and I just don't like that as a gesture and I don't think it yields anything longer term for the patient or the doctor as it were or the parent or the child so I just wanted to set up this boy on the stage to sort of monologue around him and and I, to do that I needed to create the weather system that he's in his parents and his peers and the educational and political context and give him things he loves and gives him things he hates. And then quite early on, I was like, if I do it now, I just don't know enough about mobile phones, really. Like my children and people communicate on mobile phones so differently and therefore bullying and romance and music and everything has changed so totally. Like there's been a total paradigm shift even since the last time we met, right? And watching the way my kids do stuff on Snapchat, my eldest, I'm like, I don't know the rules here and, and it's, it's different. And obviously some of it is really alarming and some of it's really wonderful. Um, mostly alarming, I'd say. <laughs> but anyway, um, I thought 1995 is good because it's this moment before the new labor years and when there was this sort of 
the legacy of conservative rule, the decaying of various institutions and the dismantling of the welfare state, but I didn't want to write about now because then I'd be a lot of Max Porter essaying on the problems of now. So it was a way of taking myself out. And that was the whole effort of this book is to take me out. Um, so Shai isn't me. He's built of many, many people, but not really me. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that was my starting point. Well, it's interesting to come across a young man or a teenager grappling with all the things teenagers do. And I think sometimes when we think of like kids with issues, mm. we're trying to find out what went wrong. You know, oh, he had a difficult father mm. or, mm. oh, because like you said, it's the same thing as going, mm. oh, he's bipolar. Mm. That's, that means he's cured. Mm. We it's just the trauma plot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, or yeah. we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, that's, you know, A plus B equals mm. C, and it's just mm. not how but we do it, it historically as well, don't we? You know, oh, Britain is, gen is so um, xenophobic and jingoistic now because we won World War II. And it's like, that's a factor, but there are many. Do you know I mean, it's this tendency to try and simplify. That's it. And when you think of the teenage brain and experience, mm. and it is so romantic and raw, mm. and it mm. it's almost this time, like you said, where you're most open to the world mm. and everything that comes after is a, is a band-aid, is the psyche kind of putting on those things that allow us all just to get on with it. Mm -hmm. um, so Shai has a loving mother and I get so, I was so worried for her and, you mm. know, and he has an annoying stepfather, mm -hmm. but he's not terrible. What was that choice about making him from a loving home? Because it makes it so much harder for us to try and give that, you know, C equation mm. answer. I just think if you give that equation, you rem you remove so much from the author because you've explained it away. So you've what you've done is ex you you've sort of swept any kind of. Um, emotional complexity or ambivalence away with an answer this is why he's like this and then and then to me that you've removed what novels are particularly good at you know like i guess that's why the hybridity is still such a thing for me because i'm leaving enough blank space for that to be a little bit like you know a, a poem that pays explicit attention to to an object or 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 a form a linguistic formulation but doesn't tell you the context so the context is your own to, to, to implant on it or to, or to bring to it. So you, so that work is what, why poems are so extraordinarily miraculous in the brain, both while you're reading them and afterwards, because you're still doing that work. So I guess that was one of the reasons why I just, I didn't, I didn't want him to have been hurt or abused or the death of the father or anything. Those things are all at play, but I don't land on any of them. You might wish to, but I, I don't, you know, one might wish to, but I yeah. don't. And then I think that also because of the kind of, particularly in the Western world, you know, it's interesting you, you draw parallels between Australia and the UK, but that kind of middle-class, suburban, white malaise, you know, in America it gave birth to, 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 to grunge music or skate culture or, you know, whatever, but it, it is ultimately this sort of the problem. And, and now it's become a, pro a problem like a suicide epidemic in the UK or joblessness in this, or whatever it is. You know, you can find sort of social problems that arise from it, but ultimately it was this sort of this shrug of what am I supposed to make of this? End of the 20th century, we've got the nuclear bomb, we've got the prison system in the States, we've got environmental apocalypse, etc. cetera. We, you know, we've got, uh, you know, left and right, neither of them mean anything anymore. They've both become each other, you know, like this sort of, I guess, yeah, the existential challenge of being a teenager anyway, but also a privileged one who, who is drenched in shame from the minute they first speak. Every utterance is drenched in, in complicity, right? So what does that mean? You don't spring out of bed, right? You, don't, you, don't, you, you shrug and say, what am I supposed to do with this? Um, or you, you self-harm or you harm others. It, 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 become, it morphs into violence explicitly and symbolically. So I wanted to just work out where there is a language for it. Does he have a language for it? Do I need to find him one? What I found was that any attempt on my part to find him one was fraudulent. It became the language of, of you know, psychotherapy or um, education and, and became me. So I just had to keep on taking myself out and let him try and speak or let the language completely collapse around him and just be pure, what have I done? Or pure hurt. Um, or just noise, just grating noise in his head. And that was an interesting challenge like on the, on the surface in, in language, but also it was an interesting challenge across the whole. Like, who am I giving voice to? Well, I, I think exactly what you're saying too is that 
the language we have around so many things is cliche mm. and that as soon as you rely on those cliche words, which we all hear ourselves mm. saying sometimes in situations, in a fight, mm. Mm. in a this, and you think, mm. am I this mm. basic? Mm. Like mm. use, find words or mm. communicate. Mm. That's so interesting you'd say that because one of the reviews in the UK that was very hostile to the book, um, which is fine, it wasn't a stupid review, but it just didn't, didn't like it, doesn't like my work. And it said at one point, and then you get this list of things that Shai wants at the end. And, and they were just total cliches of teenage life. And it was so interesting because I'd taken them from very, very unhappy teenagers that I'd been spending time with. And so it's like, it's like a stereotype, right? It's, it's, it exists for a reason because it's true. So one of them is that he wants facial hair. So many of the teenage boys I spoke to were concerned with when they would get facial hair and whether it would join up and whether it would whether they'd be able to grow a moustache and this kind of thing and i put it in that for felt very them. grounded well, for me is, it's because true, right <laughs> as a teenage girl all you want mm. i would do trade-offs in my mm. head mm. like these fantasy mm. trade-offs if i had a body like her yeah, i'd yeah, yeah. give up yeah. you know almost like a left toe or yeah. whatever the, yeah, yeah. And, but but we do it as adults uh, yes but yeah, also yeah. you realize how extreme mm. and kind of mm. violent mm. and self-serving mm. these mm. these games well are. that's why it's not a, it's not a resolution on my part like i wanted to gift him this moment where he's suddenly got these things he wishes for they're concrete things and in the world he finds things he can yearn for he wants that tattoo he wants those turntables he wants that record he wants facial hair etc and i think that what that does is set up the artificiality of those things for him, but they are simultaneously therapeutic and real. So I found it quite moving to, to actually talk to young people about what they want and see that they are, of course, things loaded up with, with the trappings and the, the, the symbols and signposts of like merchandise society. You know, they're stuff. Kids want stuff, and that's how they define themselves. And, um, you know, however ludicrous that is to me as a writer or me as a parent or us as people looking back on our teenage years or... or a non-human looking across at the human from the other side of the divide, that is him landing in his own skin in a way that I felt like had to happen. Occasionally you get these incredible pockets of insight or light where the language crumbles away and you actually see one another as human beings. But we have to use the language to get there. So yeah, I'm, I'm super interested in this question of, of how we escape and utilize these cliches. But also I think what's different about wanting facial hair and finding a reason to think of a future because of that. Yeah. That's such a grounding thing mm. for him because mm. it's, it means he's on the planet. Mm. He mm. hasn't gone anywhere. Mm. And then I mm. think for uh, us adults, I mean, my fiance last night, you know, he's like, where, where is home? Why have we mm. decided it's here, Angie? I don't understand. And, I was and like, you said, well, like my house plants. Yeah. Well, and then I think you, I, I literally... It's like, what's going to ground you right yeah. now? Go and stand outside and look at plants yeah, that yeah. are with us. Like, what will tether you? There's no rhyme or reason. I don't mm. know. Mm. We chose this place. Mm. You know, mm. often I have these discussions with him because he's like, I'm just making up meaning for mm. this life. It's mm. all mm. made up, Angie. And That's I, it. he's and it's, right. It's true. Yeah. I don't dwell there because mm. I'm like, where does that get me? Mm. I love that crossroads or that sort of fork. I mean, that's, that's where Shai comes from really is that, that point at which despair and deep, deep joy, um, kinship, um, hope, etc. the kind of things that we're, we're trying to interrogate as novelists all the time. It's where those two things, you realize they're not divergent paths. They are woven together. So actually in that moment of, where is home? You realize you, of course, are on the edge of the great epiphany that it's it's just in you, and that, and, that, and then and then of course you go and hug the people you love, or you look up at the sky and realize that it's an extraordinary, or you hear birds like so that. Yeah, I, I guess that that he's doing himself an enormous and I think quite compassionate favor by having those feelings, and if you were to just describe those feelings as bad or unhealthy or pointless or a kind of emotional cul-de-sac of any way, then you deny yourself the opportunity to get to the place that's connected to it, which is that it's here, you know. And that's all I wanted to do for Shy, really. And, you know, that's why the book opens up with that 
thing of his teacher saying to him, this is this flint is 60 million years old. Because that's a really, really incredible thing that I can just walk out onto the street, maybe not in Soho, but I can walk <laughs> out onto the street in most places and just pick up a rock and be confronted with the total extraordinary shortness of human life and the incredible depth of, of geological deep time. And that'd be profoundly terrifying and make me feel like I might as well just jump off the bridge, but also really, really clarifying and cathartic and make me realize that I've just got to run and say to my Angie, this is home, this is, why, this is what we've chosen. And if this all falls down and breaks apart, then that's okay because this moment that we had with our bodies together was enough. It is enough. Like I wrote a monologue for the actor Killian Murphy last year and it finishes with those words, it is enough. He realizes that all his apologies, all his shame on behalf of himself and others and all men and all human beings at a species level are all a thank you. That's what they are. That's, they're just him formulating uh, a, 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 an okayness with himself as here briefly. And that's enough. <laughs> I think the last 20 years, so much, you know, there's been so much movements forward in terms mm. of acceptance of the self and you are enough. But it doesn't, still doesn't seem to penetrate. It's very hard. Mm. Something I heard Catelyn Moran say, who I just adore, and I think she had a daughter who was quite suicidal mm. and I'm not speaking out of turn because she mm. has mm. spoken about this and she felt so powerless mm. as you know the feminist of the UK with all the answers mm. particularly for women and she revealed that she felt that a we don't show young people that it's great to be an adult that yeah. there is so much yeah. joy yeah. in the human experience mm. in middle age or as a parent it's funny because we now have more language about mental health than ever before we've made as you say extraordinary breakthroughs you know i mean look, listen to my like my mum for example talking about how her parents dealt with the death of her first child like they were practically victorian they just didn't have a vocabulary for that kind of pain they're like move on put the cot in the attic never mention her name move on you know, so the world has changed so profoundly, but we've got more young people suffering from mental health issues than ever before. Well, one of the reasons I think is this, as you say, is because what we're telling them they've got to look forward to, or what we're, t you know, even like, what is our language around the menopause? What is our language around aging? What is our language about retirement? And these are all like economically determined ideas of a steady decline or a loss or a failure or, you know, or a collapse, plus the, plus the planetary stuff, plus the kind of, we've come to the end of the line of various, ideas we had about freedom of movement or hope or collaboration, etc. And what we do, I think, even accidentally or even in ways that we're really unaware of or, or we do it subconsciously, is put this pressure of hope or progress on young people and just say, well, we fucked it, so you'll be okay. You'll come up with an idea. Whereas what we might say is, um, how does it feel like it's broken? Um, tell me how it is broken for you because I don't. we don't have a vocabulary. Our vocabulary is obviously not fit for purpose. You know what's interesting? I was drawn last night to read, to open this book called The Theatre of War and it's about using what Greek tragedy can mm. teach us now. Mm. And it made me think of your books um, because, you know, the guy that wrote it, often will go into correctional facilities, work with teenagers, community groups, theatre groups, and they will pick a Greek tragedy that kind of fits whatever the crisis is happening in. A lot of times it's within the military. And it was interesting how one of the soldiers after watching one of the plays was, you know, they asked, why did we do this? Um... And he just said, because it's true. Yeah. It's a cathartic experience for people. And that feels important. I love that the, why do we do this again and again and again? You know, I've got a 2000 year old text in front of me that is about misogyny or violence against women, uh, uh, the same thing, or um, as you say, the trauma of war or corruption and tendency for human beings to slide towards um, 
self-enrichment as opposed to the you know the greater good and then you see it just like this line through civilizations through humanity in every single different language and context and cultural specificity in the world you see this common wealth which is our stories which point to the same things again and again and again and again so the question that young people ask me when i do these when i take shy and do workshops with young people i'm doing one next week in a prison it's going to be interesting because we're going to do notions of apology and when i did that last time with some young people in birmingham they were just like a lot of them said i'm i don't feel like i should apologize for anything like i've made really terrible mistakes and fucked a lot of stuff up and i would be deemed to be society's bad thing but i'm not going to apologize i think i'm owed a huge apology for the space that i was born in and the land you know, and, and the, the literal physical structure of the house i was born in and the streets i lived in you know i'm going to owe an apology because it wasn't good enough and i just think that's right that's where those spaces are so incredibly interesting i think like one of the things that's so fresh about the, the old, you know, the Greek tragedies and, and how they are such incredible tools for play and education in those settings is that morally they're not stuck. Overall, we, we've lost the truth-telling faculty of those ancient tragedies, like, because things have become weirdly taboo. Like, we're getting less and less honest. And that's why I think of these books as sort of anti... somehow anti-denial machines they remind you that we are bodies at all times failing that we that, that, that the shortness and strangeness of life you know so they sort of bathe it with the kind of i guess like an animist proposition as well like all things are alive we're no more special than than anything else you know like lanny was very much about that right the tree and whatever yeah. but that that shouldn't be um that's not a, a sort of um escapist mentality that's not a hippie mentality i'm not withdrawing from modern life so as to have that opinion i'm wanting to have that opinion in modern life because i think it's healthier than just blindly obeying these this sort of the smallness of this channel and it's just a way of questioning it with yeah from a non-judgmental point of view questioning it whilst forgiving it like i've been really interested in forgiveness and, and would i forgive myself i did this thing in lockdown where i read the whole of grief is this thing with feathers on stage alone because it was being live streamed and i felt really really guilty afterwards i felt like i'd done something terribly taboo or wrong to my dad i'd like exploited his memory mm. for art's sake you know like to promote my own novel type thing and I, yeah. and I was like hollowed out by it for a couple of days and then i just went and sat on a bench in a in a field and forgave myself quite carefully like I went through it bit by bit you know a bit like when you fall you know like when you lie awake in bed and just go through yeah. your day or whatever and think yeah. about that, that and that and I just worked through it sort of notionally with him in dialogue with him but also just with uh sort of um real candor with myself about the artificiality of the process and why I was doing it and not to make myself feel better maybe even to make myself feel worse and then just did get to a point where I was able to extend to myself uh, a, like a genuine and examined forgiveness for it. Like I put it in context, I pulled it apart, and then I real built it in a way that was positive and I could move on from. And I just, and it felt a little bit like the editorial process <laughs> of, of you know of, of making a novel more itself. I don't want to make myself feel better or worse. I want to make myself feel as I should feel, um, and that be examined. Um, so yeah, I guess it's just about the quality of the examination. Um, well, and really, the only part in the book where judgment comes in is the documentary that's being made about the home last chance and I found it so interesting you know we we get these glimpses of the voiceover mm. of what an investigative you know documentary version of looking inside a boy's home in 1995 would have been, you know, and mm. tell us about those two sides. There's the there's the looking at these boys as, you know, this is the last great hope or that kind of conservative mm. voice that's very condemning. Uh, one of the things that came out of doing a lot of mentoring in um, the lockdowns, I took on loads of mentees and I loved it. It's totally changed my life. And very often I would say to them, just change you know, at that point when a writer is stuck and, and, you, and you just encourage them to, I would always say, change your directorial viewpoint. And I don't mean like literally 
think of yourself as somebody different shooting the scene from a different world, but, but try it. Like, have a go at moving around a thing and seeing it from another point of view. So, like, even, like, even, um, like, th this kind of tendency to remix the myths, right? Even tell the Iliad from Patroclus's point of view or the death of, you know, the, you know, the death of Hector from the walls of Troy rather from the Greek ships or whatever, like that kind of play, I think is really generative and it doesn't necessarily need to be corny. And so one of the things I kept on doing is thinking about who is looking at Shy and how does Shy define himself? Does he have a language to define himself? And if not, am I just going to write about him from my point of view? And there was one paragraph in the book early on that was that. I said, you know, he'd felt bad about this, thing, you know, and it just... It was so, it was such a dud. It was just, it was like a sort of social realist novel. You know, it was just, it was so, um, it was really corny and, and, and actually I think undercut the whole thing. Anyway, I, um, I like the idea that you have built into the already artificial eye of the novelist, these, the polyphonic operation, right? So he's all the time being bombarded with how everyone thinks about him. And, and then that's a language thing, right? So his friends are very vicious, but it's a form of kindness. His teacher's very kind, but it's a form of cruelty. His parents are very earnest, but it's a form of ignorance. You know, like all the time us being really highly attuned to the failures of the individual languages. And then I thought actually it'd be really interesting to have this documentary, because I'm really into the way that reportage slices into you know especially in a post post podcast world now and narrative non-fiction and like how do we tell stories and what how many non-fiction books you know this is a publisher now right how many non-fiction books are utilizing the tools of the novel and vice versa as you say they are either society's terrible failures or uh, the real potential for progressive educational reform and they are both and i'm super into this idea of bothness all the time yes so yeah i was interested in doing that and I'm glad it, because I only do it in just two, yeah, three little very... tiny bits. But people have picked up on it as a, as a kind of fundamental aspect of Shai's, um, Shai's, because, you know, I'm very obsessed with forests, but the nutrient base, mm. it's very important that it's being watched by someone. Um, I, I think also it changes think that things. period of time, like I just remember being a teenager and watching... Mm that type of reportage mm, on mm. like public television yeah, that yeah. felt really important. Yeah, yeah. And it changed the way people thought about institutions. And it was a time too where everyone still watched the same thing exactly. on the telly. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you would all watch that thing about the guy going into a prison. Exactly, yeah, that's right, yeah. And it kind of would yeah. collectively really mm, make mm. an impact. Mm, mm. Whereas now it's so hard mm. to be having a kind of unified experience mm. about anything mm. besides with all the people that agree with you mm. online mm. or... Mm. Yeah, but I also think having a non-official non or, or a B-roll, like to use, again, to use like a cinematic, the idea that the main action is happening, there is Shy acting up in front of his teachers and, and, the, do and, and, and the, the, the documentary that is Max Porter, the novelist, is filming that bit. Here's Shy screaming at his therapist. But the B-roll, the documentary I, is filming the quiet teacher in the background watching and you can see he's really biting his fingernails and he's finding this really, really difficult because he loves Shy, but also Shy is letting him down again and of all the days to do this. And I love that <laughs> attention again. It's like, yeah. where does the poet's attention sit? And I think it, it's sort of, it's, yeah, again, it's an editorial thing. So say, say he's on stage and Sh that is Shy's monologue. He's, he, we're watching Shy, he's having a tantrum. I think it's super, super interesting as a viewer to just let your gaze drift and see that the stage manager has just poked his head around the curtain and is watching the actor. Because then you think, oh, there's something going, there's something in the acting that's alarmed him. Or the institute, you know, a bit like when you're in a gallery. I'm super interested in the institutional encounter. Yeah. So like, yes, that's a, that's a Picasso on the wall. And I go straight to the wall text and I read the wall text and I look at the thing. And I, but actually the squeak of the feet, the woman that needs the loo, the, the stench of coffee from the cafe, like the drilling outside, like the fact that that glass is reflective. So we're actually all just looking at each other. You know, I want that zooming out, partly from a Martian point of view, you know, you know like Martian poetry, oh, just yeah. how strange it is. You know, so like they go to these, like the Martian thing is that, you know, they go to these huge white buildings and then they stop. A great way to describe hospitals, right? They're just busy, busy, busy. Then they go to these big white buildings and they end. Or like they will carry around these pieces of paper in their pocket that are work, that are, that are tremendously important. 
you know, I, I just love that. You know, like that's why there's that nod to the aliens coming down and saying to Shai, what would you teach us? <laughs> and him being like, oh, I've got nothing. <laughs> like I literally, because I'm the same. I'm like, if they came in now and like electricity, I don't really know. You know, fax machines, I don't, <laughs> I don't know, know at all. No, I can't really, you know, anything, nuclear thermodynamics, nothing. But I could, you know, I can recommend like Sun Ra records to you. <laughs> and then they're like, oh, what curious people these are, actually. So I want that all the time, that, um, that second camera nosing around. Yeah. Like it's often domesticity. So like in grief, it was really important for me that, you know, this is the man having the thoughts about Ted Hughes, having the sentimental thoughts about putting a monument up for his wife, ra grappling with different ideas of death and pain and rage, but also dipping a cold fish finger into coagulated ketchup. That's the thing. You know, the both. both those things. Yeah. And also Crow was watching him. Yeah. So there was that other mm. vantage point coming in to analyze that strangeness mm. of a grieving family mm. and what they do. Mm. It reminded me of your work about Francis Bacon mm. and talking about how interesting the people are watching the art well, his work is both great, sublime, mm. grotesque, and in the same way your work kind of straddles all, the, all that humanness, such bodily mm. functions it's that also body. reveal the psychological terror of life. I think it's the how to be both thing again. Like I... I Someone queued up at an event recently and said to me, uh, I hope this isn't a weird thing to say, but your books really affect my stomach. They're like, I always feel like something is curdling or bubbling <laughs> or like stinking in your work. And I, that was great. I was pleased, yeah. to, I was pleased to hear that because they're also in some ways quite cerebral. Like I hope that there's, there's stuff going on. But in Shy, you know, I did, a th I did a thing the other day at a festival for doctors and it's where arts and medicines meet. It's Gosh. brilliant. Uh, if you're ever in London and it's on, wow. you must go. It's one day. What's it called? Medicine Unboxed. And so you get, you know, neurosurgeon, deep sea diver, cellular biologist, poet, clown, piano player. And it's just by the end of the day. And they're all speaking to the same theme. This year, the theme was matter. And one of the, I, I wrote, I sort of unpacked shy. So I sort of said, here's this teenage boy standing in the middle of the night. And then I sort of splayed him out across time. So he's simultaneously his great grandfather. He's the disease that will kill him. He's, you know, um, but one of the things I said early on was he doesn't, he's <laughs> this is gross, right? Sorry, listeners. It, I said, he's, he's got skid marks in his pants because he doesn't wipe his bum properly. And that's partly from having teenage boys, but also partly as like this question of that's too much information, but it's, that's our job, right? We need as much information as we can possibly get. And if we censor the information I'm giving you about this boy, cause it's disgusting. <laughs> we don't want to think about teenage boys bums. Then I'm not giving you the whole teenage boy. And I'm robbing from the teenage boy precisely the thing that's actually occupying him. Like it's, it's, it's the stress, the thing. So this question of the oversharing or the kind of my, my compulsion towards bodily honesty, mm is just this desperate attempt not to, because I speak to enough palliative care doctors to say that that's what they're unblocking at the end, is this unbelievable anxiety about the body. And what yeah. they're doing is saying, you know, and, and this, this, this huge, colossal, industrially determined ignorance about what happens when we die. Because we're all just pretending it doesn't happen and no one, you know, no one will tell us. And what they do is go, the best palliative care doctors will, A, touch you, because touch is such an important thing. It's like midwives saying how it's going to be, you know. Like, I remember, <laughs> again, so many poo stories when I come on the podcast. <laughs> but this question of someone being deeply, deeply, deeply ashamed. Now, our midwife saying, you, you might poo. You're pushing out a baby, so of course you might do a poo. And a woman saying, I refuse. I'd rather have a, I'd rather, someone had said that I'd rather have a cesarean than poo. And they're like come on, this is a body, a yes, new body yes. is going to come ripping out of you with a load of blood and gunk and pu it's going to be fantastic. Don't worry about doing a poo. But this woman was so upset by the, because of the taboo around poo. Like that's so insane. Like we all do it twice a day. <laughs> anyway, um, I can't remember why I was telling you about poo story. Connecting it to Francis Baker. This yes. bodily, yeah. the goo, the gunk that's in there. But also I think also what you're saying is that you can't have, we can't have the ecstasy enjoy yeah. without the truth of the darkness and in the same yeah. way of the body you yeah. can't have the truth of the beauty of the touch mm -hmm. that's 
so profound if mm. you don't also acknowledge the rest. Mm. And that is one of the incredible functions of storytelling, I think, is that you travel outside of your own body into the bodies of others, into a, a, a dead duck or, a, or a, a warrior lying on a battlefield. or it, like, And that allows you to realize both the edgelessness of, of consciousness because you can move. We are not trapped, you know, but also the ways and the incredible gifts and hazards of being trapped in our skin. And it should help human beings realize that we're the same and, and start, start to dismantle the ways in which we other one another. Like I genuinely believe in it as a force for good in that way. Not a, not, not a, not a cheap and easy one. I'm not like, I, I think the empathy novels as empathy machines it should be interrogated. I think it's too easy to be like, oh, I understand all humans because I've read lots of good books in my book club. But it is, it is undoing the terrifying work of denial that, 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 that our late capitalist society is doing to us. It's been really sad the last 12 years in the UK watching the way we've spoken about other people. Like that such hatred has become so normalized, both for you know, people in poverty, the disabled, people of color, people coming to our country from a long way away in desperate, desperate need are spoken of as if they are subhuman animals. You know, this language of the swarm or the migrant invasion, and we now we're putting them in cages and shipping them to, to Rwanda. Like it, you know, Australia's doing similar things. It's so, so, so alarming, and it's so far from where we should be uh, uh, morally and practically where we should be as a species or, or notionally civilized place. It's so abhorrent um, that, that sort of like it has to be connected to the language. We have to go to the language and say we can't speak about one another like that. Um, and I need to do that work as a parent, need to do mm. it as a novelist, need to do it as a reader of newspapers, you know, because otherwise we can't row back. We can't, we can't. We can't go back yeah, there's again. so far to regain mm. Mm. even a sense of humility about each other mm. is eroding. Now, Max, I have to let you go. So I want to ask you one more question. And I'll give a short no, non-rambling answer. This is the problem with flying to New York and then being asked really intelligent questions is I just go, ooh, and then talk for 25 minutes. It's brilliant. Minutes. I don't want to. You just been to. like, shut up, give me an answer. I don't want to, but I know you have oh, a whole New York. I'm really hoping this question is about what I think it's about. I don't know. Is it about shower gel? <gasps> oh my gosh, remember that? <laughs> but my new, what, what I feel about shower gel in 2016, I now feel about socks. Okay. That's my new thing is I just treated myself to a good pair of socks and it was a game changer because I wear these barefoot shoes now. And what is the material of preference? Oh, I think they're cotton, but they're Rototo. Okay. Rototo, Rototo, Japanese sock company. They're pretty hipster, I have to say. You can see, you find them in like little boutiques in Amsterdam and places, but they, the, the feeling I get when I put my clean foot into a clean Rototo sock and then put my barefoot shoe on and go strolling it's just, it's what shower gels were doing to me in 20, it's, it's the new hit, you know. I don't, ask for me, I don't ask for much in this life. Like I don't drive a smart car, I don't, I've never had a massage, I never go to a spa. But the, the clean sock and the shower, oh, love it. I mean, we've just solved the meaning of life, mm. just there, these mm. simple pleasures. Yeah, it is, because you're so appreciative of it in the moment. It's very clarifying. Because as you say, you know, like your fiance's point, how do I find home? And I don't belong anywhere. I guess I belong with my family. I belong with the people I made. I belong in my skin belongs yeah. with them. But actually those moments of deep, deep appreciation of a glass of water or a comfortable sock, you know, it's not a lot, but the idea of luxury, like I really like a simple, a simple luxury. You know that thing of never taking water that comes out of a tap for granted? Because it's just mind blowing, isn't it? And it's so refreshing. <laughs> and that kind of childlike, joy at being hydrated when you've been dehydrated. I love that. I love capturing those moments because I get them with books as well. Like I just have this sort of, like, I just went to a bookshop this morning and bought this little tiny New Directions edition of an Agatha Christoph book. And I got it out of the shop, took it out of the paper bag, put it to my face, smelt it, rubbed it, Yes. saw that it was good value, saw that the design was good. And I was just like skipping off down the road. Anyway, your actual last question. 
I think you just nailed it, actually. I was going to ask what lights you up. Mm. Good sock. Good bookshop. What's my favorite thing at the moment? I have a stone collection. And uh, like the early page in Shy where the teacher says to them that the flint is 60 million years old. Because I collect like Pez machines and Japanese toys and I'm a, I'm a, I collect all sorts of weird shit. But my stone collection is really precious. And I have in my stone collection a piece of Lewisian gneiss. I think it's pronounced gneiss, gneiss, G-E-G-N-E-I-S-S. And I read a book last year that told me that it's one of the oldest rocks. It's 30,000 million years old. What? And so my favorite thing to do at the moment, when everyone's out in the daytime, I'm supposed to be working from home. And I've been super busy, so I've been enjoying these moments. There's a moment in the day when the light comes straight into my living room and I go up and I take Happy the puppy and we sit up and I have Happy in one hand and I'm just tickling his, he's got a little Mohican that the groomer yes. did as a joke and we kept it because it looks so sweet. So I just tickle his, his head and he loves it and he smiles and the soft hair. And in the other hand, I hold my 30,000 million year old rock and just bliss out on that strangeness and that excitement. Thank you. That is the most beautiful way to end. Thank you for this chat, Max. Thank you for having me again. I'll, I'll see you in another... I'm here. Five years, I'm coming. Oh, six my no years. next novel, if I do another novel, it's going to be seriously different, so I have to start all over again. Okay, shake yeah, it up. I'm starting again. Okay, thank you so much. Thanks, Andrew. Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Olivia Allmeyer is the marketing and editorial consultant. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. Andre Rodofsky wrote the theme music. See you in two weeks. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Find easy ways to store your outdoor tools and accessories at Menards. Suncast provides high-quality and easy-to-assemble storage. Suncast storage sheds are the perfect solution for organizing and protecting your outdoor tools and equipment. Plus, their all-weather construction is low-maintenance. Explore all our outdoor storage options in-store and on Menards.com. And check out more of our great deals going on now at Menards. Save